and hook it on. Good morning. Just apropos nothing at all, really, I love the way that the people who lead worship in this church do their research and tie in the songs that they've chosen with what we're looking at. You might not notice, but actually it's, it's a really key thing, and uh, I love it. And so notice, it's good stuff. Good morning again. We're carrying on this morning with our reading and contemplating of Paul's letter to the Philippian church. According to the theologian Gordon Fee in How to Read the Bible Book by Book, Philippians is the favorite letter of many Christians, and it's perhaps easy to see why. It is, as has been noted in previous weeks, a very loving letter, a letter of friendship, full of expressions of love, appreciation, and encouragement, and it's also short. It's a distinct advantage in the eyes of some. However, It's also a very challenging letter. The challenges come thick and fast. We are challenged in chapter 1 to care less about the motives of those preaching the gospel. Verse 18 in chapter 1 says, What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. How does that sit with our theology? Later in the same chapter, Paul encourages us to live in such a way that we are a credit to the message of Christ. Not much there then. Chapter 2 does not let up. We are not to be selfishly ambitious. We are to put others' interests before our own, and may the Lord help us, we are to have the same mindset as Jesus in our relationships with one another. Enough of a challenge. We're not done. We're not to grumble. We'll argue. We are to persevere. We have to grow up. We must stand firm. And over it all, we are called to rejoice. So, joyful a letter it may be. It undoubtedly is. But Philippians is a call also to transformative action. And as Jeremy put it in his talk a few weeks back, to radical obedience. It makes it clear that meeting these challenges is going to involve a a determined act of will and some ruthless hard work. It will involve taking a long look at ourselves, addressing what we see that we don't like, and not running away from it. So let's find out how. I will be concentrating today on the passage starting from verse 12 in chapter 3 through to chapter 4, verse 7. But we're going to read from verse 7 in chapter 3 to have some context. So here we go. Electronic devices to the ready, or books, so last century. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. 
Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have set in us. You, sorry, you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord, always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness or gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So, firstly, what pleases God? We live in a CV-dominated world. Our achievements are written down on a couple of sheets of A4, not too much, or people won't read it. And there you have it, the sum total of who we are. I was particularly struck by this when our daughters were still at school and where the encouragement to undertake any particular activity or to embark on some new venture was often, it'll look really good on your CV. Of course we have to start somewhere, but it saddens me to think that the prime motivation for doing any given thing should be that it looks impressive. Paul was impressive on paper, and as we saw last week, he knew it. He also used it when he had to. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas are actually in Philippi and are thrown into prison, severely beaten and chained, all without trial. The story will be familiar to many of us. Their jailer is converted, and yet again, God has brought unexpected blessing and joy out of Paul and Silas's suffering and seeming shame. When the time comes for them to leave quietly, however, Paul refuses. They beat us publicly and without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now, do they want to get rid of us quietly? Nah. Let them, that is, the magistrates whose orders all this happened, let them come themselves and escort us out. 
The next verse tells us that when the magistrates heard Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. I bet they were. It was a massive screw-up for which heads could roll. Depriving a Roman citizen of his basic rights was not a sharp move. And my reading of this passage is that Paul was more than happy to watch them squirm for a while. A great man, St. Paul, but not above a little one-upmanship on occasion. Few, if any of us, have achieved what Paul achieved for the gospel. But he was still human, and he was still flawed. The Bible is absolutely full of flawed heroes. I believe our heroes' flaws are part of what makes them people we can emulate and model ourselves on. They're not superhuman. They're not perfect. They're just like us. So does this mean we shouldn't concern ourselves with our CVs, but that instead we should concentrate on higher spiritual matters? No, no it doesn't. For those of you who are students, the main reason you are here in St Andrews is to gain a degree. For those of us who aren't students, we are called to be the best we can be in whatever field God has put us in. The main thing we need to take from this is that as far as God is concerned, we are not defined by what we have achieved or will achieve, but rather by our heart attitude to him. Every one of the talks we've had so far on this letter has emphasized that. I was so struck by the way Morag put it in her talk a couple of weeks back. The pursuit of excellence drives a will to improve. The pursuit of perfection drives you demented. I had enlightened parents. They made clear to me that what they asked of me was simply that I do my best, not somebody else's best, my best. All by myself, with no encouragement or help from them whatsoever, I turned this into a striving for perfection. My best was not enough. I had to be the best at everything. Guess what? Instant fail, right there. My self-esteem depended not on my doing my best, but on doing it better than anyone else. Rather late in life, I recognize this for the sin it is, and with God's help, I continue to address it, to work on it, and to kick it into touch every time it looms at me. To those of us who struggle with perfectionism, I'd say this. Be careful not to set higher standards for yourself than God sets for you. As Morag also said, Accept and offer imperfect service, which is considerably better than no service at all. Paul makes it clear in verse 12 that he has not yet obtained his goal of being totally identified with Christ. He says he is not perfect, but he will persevere and keep going. And it is this perseverance, this determination to continue aspiring to being more and more like Christ, which God seeks from all of us who call ourselves Christians. The pursuit of excellence drives a will to improve. But perseverance, not perfection, is what pleases God. So secondly, how do we persevere in a way that pleases God? Our primary motivation, like Paul's, must surely be because Christ has made me his own. Gratitude, in other words. 
a theme which is continued later in chapter 4, as we will see. We're often very touched, aren't we, when we're on the receiving end of random small acts of kindness, which we can see and measure. But sometimes maybe we forget the enormity of what Jesus has done for us in taking the full weight of all our nonsense on his shoulders and enabling us to be reconciled to our God as a result. It is out of gratitude to Jesus that Paul presses on. We press on, doing our best for God, because he gave his best, capital B, his son, for us. Gratitude is a challenge sometimes. I have a favorite quote from a writer called Dorothy Sayers, who wrote detective fiction, amongst other things, in the first half of the 20th century, and was a committed Christian. This is from her novel, Gordy Knight, written in 1935. She's awfully kind, but I'm always having to be grateful to her. It's so depressing. It makes me want to bite. How right you are, said Harriet. I know. Gratitude is simply damnable. I, maybe you haven't felt that ever, but I certainly have. I wonder if gratitude comes more readily to those of us who are quite clear what it is we have been dramatically saved from. A life of crime, for example, or from alcohol or drug addiction. I really don't know. But the call to gratitude is just the same for those of us who, like Paul, have led relatively comfortable lives, who, on the face of it, have it all. Gratitude may, ironically, be a particular challenge for those of us who've been brought up in Christian families, where it's all too easy to take Jesus for granted because he's always been there. In those instances, Paul is a particularly good role model for us. Gratitude and knowing where we're headed give rise to perseverance. In verse 14, Paul talks about the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And to be honest, I'm not exactly clear what Paul means by this. What's more, it seems to have been a puzzle down the ages too. The 17th century theologian Matthew Henry believed the goal to be heaven. He writes, there is no getting to heaven as our home, but by Christ as our way. Eugene Peterson in the message writes this, I've got my eye on the goal where God is beckoning us onward to Jesus. So let's keep focused on that goal, those of us who want everything God has for us. And in his translation of the New Testament, Tom Wright says that the goal is the upward call of God in King Jesus, the upward call itself. I know ambivalence is uncomfortable for us. We like things spelt out, neat and tidy. But my conclusion is that whatever the goal is, a blissful eternity spent in the presence of God, a state of perfection in heaven brought about by Jesus and by him alone, whatever it is, it has to be better and greater and more rewarding than anything we can think up for ourselves. If we know, beyond doubt, that God has our best interests at heart, does it matter any more than it mattered to Paul in chapter 1 what the motivation for preaching the gospel was? In these relativist times, it is a further challenge when Paul states in verse 15 that the only mature way of thinking about all of this is to agree with him. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal it to you. We persevere, we press on, because as we read in 1 John 4:19, he, God, first loved 
us. In the light of that love, there is no other way, Paul says. And then thirdly, we must learn to be role models both inside and outside the church community. If proof were further needed that St. Paul was not British, it's right here in verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me. Watch and learn, church, he's saying. Watch and learn. I've got it right, and if you want to get it right, do what I do. It's not very British to blow your own trumpet like that. And this is not the only place that he sets himself up as a role model either. In 1 Corinthians 1.11, he says something very similar. Follow my example, as I follow the example of Christ. As we've seen, Paul is very clear that he is not perfect. He hasn't got it taped, and he's as flawed as the next man or woman. A cursory reading of Acts shows that he falls out definitively with his best mate Barnabas, with whom he has worked closely for years. He loses his temper. Look at chapter 16. Prior to his conversion, he was capable of chronic arrogance and self-righteousness and terrible cruelty. And yet, God shows him. We are almost pathologically incapable in this country of being able to confess to being good at something, anything. But I say to all fellow Britons and anyone else who regards abject self-deprecation as a cardinal virtue, we need to get right over ourselves. The reason for this is simple. Scripture is clear that those of us who follow Christ are God's beloved children, certainly, but also his ambassadors. Ambassadors represent their country and their governments in foreign lands. If people who don't know Christ want to understand him better, they're supposed to look at us and get a better idea of who God is. Well, that's daunting. As Christians, we are called to be salt and light in any community in which we find ourselves, at work, at home, on the rugby pitch, on the golf course, in our art classes, dance groups, tutor groups, halls. We're supposed to be different. That doesn't mean weird, although plenty of us probably are a bit weird, but just different. One of our former students was a very good footballer and an extremely popular guy, both within and outside the church. If I remember correctly, he was captain of the university team, and it was a challenge for him each Wednesday to show that he did not see getting absolutely wasted every week after playing as part of his brief. It was tough to be part of the crowd, but to opt out of the bits that he knew dishonored God. He believed, as I do, that as Christians we're free to drink alcohol. There are many who disagree, some of them for very good reasons, and that is their right and their prerogative. He did not believe, and no more do I, that it is acceptable as a Christian to drink to excess, and certainly not to drink to excess on a regular basis. There are practical reasons for this, quite as much as moral ones. It's bad for your health and it costs too much. However, the bottom line is that anything we do which can radically alter our behavior for the worse and put pay to our self-control will never honor God. Self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Why would we overlook it? And anyway, nobody can tell me that spinning rooms spending half the night hanging over a toilet and having a mouth like a rat's cage on the following morning of fun. They're not. I remember. The point of this is not that we're better Christians if we abide 
by a set of rules. That's legalistic nonsense. We are not in the business of rules, but of relationship. What got through to me in my early days as a Christian was the realization that my behavior could grieve God, who loved me and whom I said I loved. As Christians, we are in relationship with a living God. I don't set out to hurt people I love. Why would I afford God any less consideration? So as Christians, we need to realize that, whether we like it or not, those of our friends who do not know God look to us for some guidance. What do they see? Do we allow God to make us different in a way that honors him? We're also called to be role models within the Christian community. Paul sets himself up as a role model and asks his trusted friends in Philippi to do the same and to watch out for those who are seeking to follow Christ and Paul's examples. Verse 17, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. I think it is of inestimable value, whatever stage you are at in your Christian walk, to look for role models and in time to seek to be a role model to others. A role model need not be someone who is much older than you. When I came to faith, I was a 22-year-old drama student, and I knew no Christian who was notably older than I was. I looked at my Christian friends and saw something I knew I needed. I desperately didn't want to need it, but need it, I did. And they had it, whatever it was. Later, of course, I did meet older, wiser Christians from whom I learned a great deal more. Now, as an older and allegedly wiser Christian myself, the boot is arguably on the other foot. But I still have people I look to for guidance and for wisdom. Sometimes these are my peers and friends, but I also meet regularly with a woman who is 10 years my senior, a wonderful person whose church background is very different from mine and whose insights and wisdom have been transformative for me. Not only that, but my home group is a place where I continue to learn and not by any means only from the old and wrinkly. What I think God is looking for in each of us is a teachable spirit. Well done, but you're not done. We do not want to be people who know everything, but understand nothing. There are too many of those around already, so let's resist that temptation. Instead, let's ask for wisdom as we are told to in James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously without finding fault, and it will be given to you. We need to be lifelong learners. We need not only to ask for wisdom, but once we've been given it, to exercise it. Whose example will we choose to follow? Paul makes it clear in verses 18 and 19 that there are choices to be made, and we are responsible for our own choices. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, he writes, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Yesterday, I was reading about Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 11. This great king who built the temple in Jerusalem and whose wisdom was legendary finished really badly. And the problem was sex. 
Against the Lord's explicit instructions, he married women who worshipped other gods. And he married rather a lot of them. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. I was exhausted just reading about it. (laughs) Then to make matters worse, he did just what God said would happen and started building altars to and following other gods. How could that possibly have happened with Solomon? It was so sad. But as Nicky Gumbel pointed out in his commentary on the passage, 700 wives and 300 concubines do not happen overnight. No kidding. There must have been compromise in Solomon's heart. In spite of all God's blessings, Solomon allowed sin to breed, and in the end, it ruined him. Allowing sin to breed. Now, there's a thought-provoking expression. The risk of allowing sin to breed is that there, for all of us... Sorry, let me start again. The risk of allowing sin to breed is there for all of us if we forget to keep focused on Jesus or to stand firm, as the first verse of chapter 4 says. But note also the love with which Paul says it. This is a loving encouragement, not a rebuke. He expresses such love for the church at Philippi whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. And he urges them to stand firm in the Lord, whom he describes as his beloved. And then we get to verse 2, and the tone of this is kind too. Euodia and Syntyche, women of influence in the Philippian church, are clearly at odds with one another. And it is a serious enough disagreement to have been brought to Paul's attention. He entreats others to help sort it out. But at no point is he disparaging, impatient, or dismissive. On the contrary, he acknowledges both women as having been side by side with him in the promotion of the gospel. Remember, this is the man who fell out with Barnabas. He knows the pain of broken relationship, and he takes it very seriously. Disagreements between people within church can and do happen. They are often extremely painful, and sometimes, sadly, they will remain unresolved. But we do need to do all we can to heal the breach. Shrugging our shoulders and flouncing off is not an option, however wronged we feel we may be. Lack of forgiveness is not an option either. Read Matthew 5.15 if you're in any doubt of this. We will all be on the receiving end at some point of somebody else's unkindness, whether unintended or calculated. And more to the point, we will all meet it out too, inadvertently or possibly even deliberately. So let's be really careful not to expect from other Christians standards which are much higher than those that we expect from ourselves. And now we reach verses 4 to 7, which are so well-known and so beautiful. Paul urges us to rejoice in the Lord. Again, gratitude is at the heart of our relationship with God, and we are called on to pray with thanksgiving. Our circumstances may be appalling. His certainly were when he wrote this. But nobody can take from us what God has given, and whatever happens, our relationship with him, from his point of view, is secure. That, if nothing else, is cause for gratitude and rejoicing. Speaking personally, 
When my circumstances are stressful and difficult, I find it very hard to rejoice. But the trouble is, when everything is hunky-dory and going brilliantly, I find I forget to rejoice. Oops. Probably be best under the circumstances to learn to rejoice always. Paul did. So can we. And we do that by coming to church and worshipping him on a Sunday, along with lots of other people whose circumstances may also be stressful and difficult. If gratitude is not enough to motivate us, we worship as an act of will, that radical obedience thing again. I absolutely believe that if we give God an inch, he will take a mile. I have come to the church on many occasions feeling mutinous and left feeling loved. But we do have to show up. The passage ends with a promise, and so will I. The Lord is at hand. Verses 6 and 7 in the message read like this. Don't fret or worry. Instead of worrying, pray. Let petitions and praises shape your worries into prayers, letting God know your concerns. Before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for good will come and settle you down. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the center of your life. Amen to that. Should we stand? just want to remind you of uh, Toby's word about coming up. Um, if that is relevant to you, please don't leave without some prayer. And I am keen that the enemy not lie to us and say this is a council of despair if you're not grateful, if you're not rejoicing, if you're not doing this, that, and the next thing. Well, you can leave. That's not it at all. We are surrounded by people in this church and in the Christian community at large who want the best for one another, who want to see people be everything they can be in God. We are not alone. We're not alone because of being a member of this church or another church, and we're not alone because Jesus, my Bible says, never leaves us or forsakes us. So let's come forward with whatever we need and just ask the Lord to make things clear to us. So Father God, we just want to dedicate, rededicate ourselves to you. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. And we say, come, Holy Spirit. Come more.